Take your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to actually be in a variety of scriptures today. Normally I like to take one and camp out. And uh, today we're going to do more of a topical sermon. And uh, just bear with me with that if you will, please. Frank uh, Lloyd Wright is one of America's greatest architects. And he tells of an incident in his life when he was nine years old. He was with his uh, uncle. And his uncle was one of those no-nonsense kind of guys, cut, cut straight to the chase, uh, you know, get right to it and move on, make progress in life. And uh, he was with his uncle one day up in an area where they were living, and it had snowed, and they were trying to move from one end of the pasture to the other. And uh, so they crossed the fence line and were headed to the other fence line, and Frank Lord Wright kind of went his way and he kind of walked over. He went and looked over one thing on one side and saw something on the other side and walked over there and saw something back. So he was just kind of meandering around the pasture and his uncle went straight across. And so his uncle obviously got to the other side before Frank Lord Wright did. And when they got over there, his uncle said, now, nephew, I want you to notice something. There's a good lesson in life for you. He said, I want you to turn around. I want you to look at the tracks in the snow. And you'll notice that yours, you kind of went all over the place and it took you longer to get here and you just kind of meandered around. But my tracks, on the other hand, you can see we went from point A to point B, got here and now we're ready to move forward. He said, let that be a lesson to you. Frank Lloyd Wright, years later, reflecting back on that, said, you know, I didn't realize at the moment how big a lesson that was for me. But I determined from that point forward that I would never be satisfied with just going straight to something. I was going to live life to the fullest and wander around and see everything that I could. Not exactly the lesson that his, ne- uh, his uncle intended for him, but a lesson nonetheless. And I use that to begin the process this morning as we, st- well, I start to say stand, but as you sit here uh, on the verge of a brand new year, what are your plans for the new year? This time of the year, we throw around Happy New Year and all that kind of stuff. I'm all for it. I've said it a number of times, even this morning. But what do we mean when we say Happy New Year? Typically, what we're saying is we're wishing something for you. I've got to be honest with you. In my life, I need a plan, okay? I'm a plan kind of guy. I'm a goal-oriented kind of guy. I, I, I appreciate the best wishes and all that stuff, but give me a plan to make this the kind of year that gets us where we need to go. Otherwise, what we'll find is we're going to trudge through another year. We may see lots of stuff and experience lots of things, but not really have much to show for the year. When we stand or sit together on December the 31st, 2012, if God allows us to do that together, what will we see as we look back on the year that now lays before us? My argument for us this morning is that we be very intentional as we go forward. You may not be a New Year's resolution kind of person. I'm okay with that. But at least be moving somewhere. And what I'd like to do today is give you four different elements of what I think is a great plan for a great new year as we go forward. Here's the first one. The first one is you need to let go of what's bad. Now that probably kind of sits there. Maybe in your thinking you're going, okay, duh, that makes sense. But let's examine it just a little bit. Let go 
of what's bad. Now, maybe we should probably stop a little bit and identify some things or maybe just a couple as we try to move forward here. What, what is it, some of the things that we need to let go of that are bad in us? You know what I've discovered through the years? Christian people, Christian people are loaded, many of them, with a profound sense of guilt. Something happened in your life or in somebody's life maybe years ago, maybe moments ago, and you just can't get over it. Maybe it was something that was said. Maybe it was an action that was taken. But something has occurred in the lives of many Christian people, and they just can't seem to get over the guilt that comes with it. If you don't hear anything else I say today, please hear this. There is absolutely no excuse for a Christian to be loaded with guilt. Now, I know that that cuts right across the grain of most churches and how they operate. A lot of preachers love being the ones who hack on people because they're guilty. But here, here's this. If Jesus Christ died on the cross, did he? Yes. Okay, the answer is yes, he did. And if he did, if means since, since he did, and with that sacrifice that Scripture tells us in many places covered our sin. His grace flows down because of the cross and the event that occurred there and Jesus dying on the cross for our sin because God through that offers forgiveness of sin. There's no excuse for a Christian to go through life carrying guilt. But so many Christians do. And some Christians like to help other people feel guilt and heap guilt upon them. 1 John 1, nine. this is the first passage, goes with this first point, and that is let go of what's bad as you go into the new year. 1 John 1, nine simply says, if we confess our sins, all right, now let's stop. 21st century, new age, postmodernism, if none of that stuff means anything to you, hear this. In this day and age, many of the people in our world take this word sin and they get totally bent out of shape about it. And the reason they do is because there is this mentality that we are adopting as a society that says essentially there is no such thing as sin because what's right is relative. If I think it's okay, then it's okay. You know what the Bible says about that? Theological term, hogwash. Okay? Sin is sin, is that which offends God. It goes against the character of God. And all of us, Scripture tells us, are sinners, right? Okay, right? I know this is a new year and you're kind of settling in, but just work with me, okay? All of us are sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all of us have guilt. But this verse says, if we confess, all right, so now we've got to get to that word. You know what that word means? Simply said, it means that we agree with what God says about our sin. So if we come to look at ourselves as a new year starts, we need to say, as I move forward, there's some things that I need to let go of. What I need to let go of are those things in my life that God says are offensive. I'm not going to list them all for you. You probably have a pretty good working list in your mind already of what we're talking about here. So we say the same thing about that as God does. That's sin. It's an offense to a holy God. And so if we confess our sins, the rest of the verse now deals with what God does with that. 
If I simply come before a holy God and say, this is wrong. I know this is wrong. I know that this is something you said that doesn't please you. It's not to be part of my life. I agree with you that it shouldn't be there. Please forgive me for that. He is faithful and just. He takes over at that point. He is faithful. He's just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see why I say there's no excuse for a Christian to be saddled with guilt. Because this one verse... By the way, if you want to take all of the verses of Scripture that I use on a regular basis in my life, this one far and away tops the list. I use this verse every day. You know why? Because I'm a sinner, just like you are. And I need forgiveness. Other people may try to make you carry guilt, but there's no reason for you to do that under heaven because God says there is forgiveness available. Let go of what's bad. Look at your life today. Is there anything there that you know? As sure as you know you're sitting here, you know that that part of your life doesn't honor God. I would send you to 1 John 1, 9. Agree with God about what he says about it and put it to rest and move on. Now, some things are not quite that simple. There are some elements of our behavior that we don't necessarily know or don't acknowledge that they're sin. It's kind of that murky territory for us. Take, for instance, the guy who was having a discussion with his wife. And he was in one of those moments where everything was good between them, and they had just come off of an argument. They had arguments a lot. And at this particular point, everything was fine. So he said to his wife, you know, uh, when I get mad at you and we start kind of, you know, getting after it, you never really, you know, you reach a point and then you just shut down and you don't get mad after that. It just eats me up. What, what is it about you that we can argue like that and you just don't go off the edge like I do? She said, well, I learned a long time ago, not long after we got married, that when we get to that point and it's charged, it's better for me to just go and clean the toilet and he said, well, what? She said, rather than get all bent out of shape with you and, you know, just emotionally over the edge, I just decide I'll shut it down and I'll go clean the toilet. And he said, how in the world does that help? She says, oh, it's easy. I use your toothbrush when I do. <laughs> That's bad. All right? But in her mind, it seems to be perfectly fine. In your mind, some of you are going, okay. And you guys are going, um, note to self. Some things about how we live our lives are not quite so cut and dry that we know that they're wrong. But on further examination, we start looking at them, we realize maybe this is not getting me where I need to go in life. I want to take you back to those two great commandments. Remember, I preached about those not long after I came. Jesus was approached, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he gave them two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, love God. Put God first in everything in your life. Secondly, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Boil it down. We're supposed to love God and love people. That's what we're about. So how do you know those things in your life that you're not really sure if they're wrong or not? Ask yourself this question, does this part of my life move me forward in accomplishing those two commandments from God? If I continue in this way of living, will I be better at loving God? Will I be better at loving people? 
two good ways to do it. But even that, sometimes we get locked up and we get these patterns of living that make it very difficult for us to discern. We, we think we're right, and it seems right, even churchy right. But it's not necessarily right. Take, for instance, this picture. I know you can't really make out the details. This is a picture. I guess it's supposed to be Mary holding baby Jesus. Whatever the case, it's a young girl holding a baby. And it's been colored. You wondered what I did all week long. Now you know. No, actually this was given to me, the church that I came from before I moved here, given to me by a little girl in our church. We kind of had a thing going. Uh, she liked to feel what my hair felt like after I cut it, like this morning. And so every time she'd see me when she was a little bitty, she'd want to reach up and rub my head. And I don't think it was a Buddha kind of rub thing, you know, but whatever the case, uh, she would want to reach up and rub it. And so that was kind of our deal. Well, one day I walked up to her expecting her to reach up like that. And instead of that, she handed me this colored picture. And I said, well, that's, you know, I tried to, you know, I learned when my kids were little, uh, you don't ever ask, what is it? Uh, you say, tell me about it. And so I looked at this and, and uh, I could tell what it was. And I said, did you color that? And she said, yes. And I said, well, thank you. She said, no. I was four years old, five years old, something like that. I said, what do you mean, no? She said, look at it. Well, she wrote on here, to Jesus, from, and she put her name on it. And I said, okay. She said, I want you to give that to Jesus. And I said, well, thank you. It's really nice of you. She said, no, it's for Jesus. Serious. I mean, four-year-old serious. And I said, well, okay. Now, theologically, I'm thinking, how do I get this to Jesus exactly? But in her mind, and here's what I want you to get from that, the religious response of that in her mind was, this is a good thing to do. And I started reflecting on that. If a little girl, now this was later reflection, if a little girl who's four or five years old can make the connection that the preacher is in touch with Jesus, that's a good thing. But it made me start thinking, how much more is it a good thing if the world that is outside of the church can make the connection that the people inside of that building can put me in connection with God? So my question then, back to us, remember, get rid of the bad. As we consider these things, how much of what we do communicates to the world out there that there's hope for them in here? How much of what we do, to take what I've already talked about, how much of what we do in here communicates to the world out there, if you step in there, you're going to get loaded with guilt? See, some of the things that we do, the way we kind of tie in, it doesn't necessarily get us where we're trying to go. And it takes a little bit of reflection to come back and step back and look at it and say, okay, is that getting me to the love God and love people part? There's one other element to this thing with this little girl in the picture that she gave me. After we finished kind of laughing about it and I made a comment to her grandmother who was standing there, this little girl looked up at me with all seriousness. And the next thing she said to me captured what I see in many Christian people. And this is the out with the bad stuff. She said to me, 
pointed to that picture and said, now Jesus owes me a favor. (laughs) And I thought, wow. Doesn't that capture how many of us approach God? I'll do something for you, but now you owe me. Out with the bad. Whatever else you want to say about that, that's bad theology. We give her a pass because she's four years old, but many of us are 44 years old or 104 years old, and that's exactly the mentality we cover through life, that God owes us something. Not so. He didn't owe us a thing, and that's why we call it grace, what he did for us on a cross. Out with the bad. And so those things, as we go into the new year, let's evaluate ourselves. What are the things, the habits, the patterns, the mentalities, what are the things that we take into the year that we know are not going to get us where we need to go? Do they help us move forward in love for God and love for people? If not, push them to the side. If they do help us, well, that gets me to the second point. If we're going to get rid of the things that don't help us, we need to hold on to the things that do help us. That's point number two. Or part of our plan, the second part of it. We looked at 1 John 1, 9. That helps us deal with what we've done. But as we move forward and as we look at those things, as we evaluate our lives, what do we have that helps us see where we are today that we can hang on to? Philippians chapter 4. This is a great passage. Most of you know it, probably could even quote it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says this. Finally, brothers, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. I'm not sure if he's running out of words here, but he's laying a bunch of them on us that point us in the right direction. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And what Paul says with this is something that helps us as we move forward into a new year. And that is there are some things that we are doing that are good. So now I guess basically what I want you to hear me say here is I don't want to be the one who just heaps guilt on you. Get rid of the bad stuff. There are some things that we do that are right. I'm, I'm intrigued with this whole thing about New Year's resolutions. Are you? I, I've talked to people. Hey, man, they, they got lists. You know, I, I started to bring several illustrations I had in here of different great Christians through the years who had lists on, on, of their resolutions every year. But I also talk to some people who say, I'm not doing those resolutions. I'll just break them, so why do it? You know, if you take that mentality, then you need to give up eating. Because why eat? You're just going to get hungry again. Right? <laughs> let's take this idea of resolutions and let's kind of bring it home. Some of the things that we do, we should continue. And I know that in New Year's resolution time, a lot of people get to things like eating correctly. I guess that means with knife and fork. I don't really know. but uh, Or do an exercise. If you happen to be 40 years of age, I don't want to raise hands raised or anything like that. 40 years or older, I'm here to help you with your New, Re- New Year's resolution on exercise stuff. Here's, it's tried and true. I've tried it myself. I know that it works. So do this. You start by standing on a comfortable surface level plan, okay? For those of you doing exercise as a New Year's resolution, like this. This is good. It's level. It's comfortable. Stand with both feet firmly on the ground. You take a five-pound potato sack, 
and you hold it out like this. And you just hold it there. And when you can do that for a full minute, now you have to work up to it, all right? But when you can hold it out for a full minute like that, by the way, you also have to switch arms and do it both ways, or you can get one for either hand, hold it out, okay? Five pound potato sack and hold it like that. Then you do that. When you can do that for a full minute comfortably, then you progress to a 10 pound potato sack. And when you can do the same thing, hold it there for, 10, um, for a minute without you know, wearing out or anything like that, then you go to a 20 pound and ultimately, you work your way up to a 100-pound potato sack. And when you can do it like that for a full minute without straining yourself, then you go back to the 5-pound and you put one potato in it and you do that. <laughs> I'm here to make life easy on you this morning. You want to ease into this exercise thing if that's your New Year's resolution. The fact of the matter is that probably as much as you may need to do some things like exercise, there are some things about you that are probably right. You know, let me just give you the most basic one. You're here this morning. If the goal is to be consistent in love God, love people, one of the things that you need to do is to position yourself to be better at that. Assembling with God's people is one of the ways to do that. So look at your life, and as you evaluate the tendency that we have in New Year's resolutions, look at all the bad stuff and try to fix it. Don't forget to say, okay, I'm doing some of these things, and I resolve to continue them, like assembling together, like Bible study, like prayer. The basic elements of what it means to walk with Christ, build those in to your life this year. Keep doing the right thing. Which takes me now to the third one. The goal that we have, love God and love people. If we're going to have a plan for the new year, plan on making a difference. I haven't done very many funerals here. That's a good thing for six months. But one of the things that I've grown to do through the years is when I do funerals, most of the time I will talk about every life leaves a mark. If you'll picture with me, you just take a piece of sheetrock. You, know, you could even use just a regular piece of wood, I suppose. But if you take a baseball... And somebody that can throw at least sort of hard. You back up far enough and you throw a baseball as hard as you can into a bald piece of sheetrock, you'll find that most of the time it's going to leave an indentation there. It makes a mark. You'll know by looking at that sheetrock that something happened. We were sitting uh, in our house the other day and uh, in a room that we don't use a whole lot because it's just two of us. Most of the time we've had a house full of people and kids have been there and it's been a great thing. And so we were sitting around playing games. I was smoking them at train. That's what I was doing. Well, actually, my wife cheated and won. But uh, <laughs> we were sitting at the table and playing this game and I looked up at the wall behind where one of the kids was sitting and there was an indentation about the size of a fist in the wall and I thought man somebody's taking this game way too seriously uh, and then I realized that it had been painted over so for the first time ever I saw on that wall evidence that somebody ran into the wall at some point I couldn't tell you who it was I couldn't tell you what happened but there's no question but that that happened 
Now, Christians need to be mark makers in this world. I want to let that sink in. We need to make a difference. We need to leave an impression here. What do you suppose is the impression that this church makes on this community? That's easier for me to talk about it as a church than it is for me to ask you directly, what kind of impression are you making for the cause of Christ in this world? This is one of those things I think that's awfully easy for us to kind of settle into our comfortable Christianity. And we come to church and we see people we like. We settle in and everything's cool and we like it and we ought to. We ought to be able to have a place where we can go and worship and feel like we're part of a community. That's part of God's design. Nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that is when we let that be the end of who we are. But Christ doesn't give us that option. He calls us to be his own and then he thrusts us out into the world and says to us essentially, make a difference. Well, he actually he calls us salt and he calls us light. And I'm going to get to some of that in just a moment. Now the passage of scripture I want you to look at with me is actually Acts chapter 17. It's one of my favorite passages in all scripture. Because I think it is a challenge to us as a church. Now I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, which is what I normally would do. But I want to just read this one verse because it captures it. Now what the deal is, is Paul and his followers and these guys have gone to a particular place and they're starting to cause trouble. And the people who live there uh, are starting to kind of rise up against it. And here's what they said. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason. That's a house owner who's there who's kind of sheltering Paul. And, and, uh, and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Did you hear that? The reputation that they brought to that situation was these are the guys that are turning the world upside down. How's that grab you? How long has it been since the city of Lumberton collectively said that Crestwood is turning this city upside down for the cause of Christ? Leave a mark. Make a difference. I'm captured by the story of, it comes from the life of Anthony Campolo. There's a lot of things about him that I don't agree with, have real problems with a lot of his theology, but not all of it. And I'm convicted by his actions much of the time. The story comes from his life. He was in... uh, Honolulu. And because of the time difference, uh, he was up very early. And he went in and he uh, was at a little diner early, early in the morning. And as he was sitting at this booth table by himself, he heard this group of women behind him talking. And one of the ladies there, uh, clearly, by the way, these were prostitutes early in the morning and they had done their deal for the night and so they gathered as a rule in that little diner and kind of waited for the morning and as he sat there he overheard the conversation behind him and particularly this one lady whose name was Agnes started talking about the fact that the next day was her birthday 
And in the course of the conversation, she let it be known to the rest of them there. She had never had a birthday party. She had never been around anybody in her life who cared that it was her birthday. Never any kind of celebration or anything like that. And Campolo uh, said in his mind, it just went off like a rocket. We should throw this girl a birthday party. And so he went over to the owner of that little diner and he told him what he was hearing and he said, you know what I'd like to do tomorrow morning uh, is to throw her a birthday party. And the owner of the diner went, you're kidding me, right? He said, no. He said, I really want to do that. Well, so that he found out that they got there about 3.30 most mornings. And so Campolo set it all up with a guy. And he went in and he got it all decorated, had a cake made for her. Happy birthday, Agnes, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, apparently the word got out on the street. So by 3.15, that diner was packed with the underbelly of Honolulu nightlife. And Campolo was there in his element, dealing with all of that. And in at 3.30 walks this girl, Agnes, the prostitute, 39 years old, and her face just exploded in joy. She could not believe, for the first time in her life, somebody cared enough to give her a birthday party. In the course of all of that stuff, Campola was talking to the owner of that diner again. And the owner of the diner looked around him and saw that. He said, I got to know, man, what is your deal? He said, well, I'm a preacher. <laughs> and the owner of the diner said, what kind of church do you come from? Well, what do you mean? He said, I, you're a preacher. What kind of preacher throws a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30 in the morning? And he said, the kind that loves God and loves people. Make a difference. You know, God strategically placed this church right here. Because there are people like Agnes all over this place. And they don't have to be a prostitute and down and out. They're up and outs too. They're people who look like they have it all together and they're desperate for somebody who knows Christ to make a difference in their life. So as we go forward, on the personal level, we need to look at our lives and get rid of the bad stuff. That's a good plan. We need to hold on to the good stuff. That's a good plan. And we need to determine this year, we're going to make a mark here. Make a difference. God strategically put this church here, but he strategically put you in your job, in your family, in your circle of friends, because people all across this area, just like every other area, desperately need life. Leave a mark. Wouldn't it be great if somebody said, man, those people at Crestwood are turning the world upside down for the cause of Christ finally fourth part of our plan what have we said get rid of what's bad hold on to what's good determine to make a difference and finally the last one is be intentional in your direction in the dark ages Christendom in what we now call Great Britain Monks were apt to just kind of 
go with the wind and see it was this intent in the church at that point to just kind of be very personal and very centralized in your own deal and so uh in order to follow Christ and be what they what they felt like God wanted them to be to to be many of these monks would jump into this little almost like a boat but not exactly like a boat because it had no rudder and no sail it was just big enough for one person, kind of a, almost just visualize a barrel of some kind. They'd jump into it and push out off of the coast there, and they would just go wherever the tides took them. And wherever they landed, that's where they would go, and they would set up their um, little personalized religious center there. And if people came to them for help, that was fine, but if they didn't, then they would be there because God took them there. A very nondescript, very non-planned approach many christians that i've met in life are kind of like that just kind of going through life not really intentionally going anywhere just kind of whatever comes my way i'll deal with it kind of reminds me of the story from the or the incident in the story of alice in wonderland and at one point alice is lost and doesn't really know where to go and so she encounters the cheshire cat And she says to the Cheshire cat, would you please tell me which way I ought to walk from here? The Cheshire cat says that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And Alice said, I don't really much care where. To which the cat replied, then it doesn't matter which way you walk. And she said, so as long as I get somewhere. And he said, oh, you're sure to do that. If only you walk long enough, you'll get somewhere. Where are you going in your life? What is it that drives you? Are you like a ship with a sail but no rudder? Carried along by what brings you? Final passage of Scripture, a challenging one. Matter of fact, this is one that ought to scare you to death. Luke chapter 14. We actually could start reading in verse 25. Let me just read it for you. I don't know. Uh, Verse 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Time out. Full stop. Wait a minute. The leaders of the Baptist world would say, Now, Jesus... That's not a good way to build a church. That's not the nice, syrupy, sweet invitation that says all can come and feel great here. Jesus sees the crowds following him and uncorks a bomb. (laughs) If you come and you don't hate, hate's not a word we like to use in church. Well, unless it's used against those specific sins that we don't like. Certainly not about how we follow. If you don't hate, and then verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You hear that? Jesus is not giving us a simple out. He does not say it's not the best way to be a disciple. He doesn't give us the out that says, well, you know, that's not the most advisable path. He says, if you are not fully 
invested in me. You can't be my disciple. We have opted in churches all of my life, at least Baptist churches, that's all I really know about, but we have opted for what I call easy believism. Oh, yeah, sure. Make a simple statement, profession of faith. Say this, and everything in your life comes underneath the salvation of Jesus Christ. I'm not arguing the profession of faith and salvation. I am arguing that we have sold a simple gospel that doesn't involve anything with discipleship. And Jesus is not interested in converts. He wants disciples. That's hard for us to hear, but it's gospel truth. You can't be my disciple. Let me read just a little bit further. And I didn't tell Spencer this, so he doesn't have it there, I don't think. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Really? Is that a way? To to change the world? To turn the world upside down? Jesus says, it is the way. And it drives me to these words. Stephen Curtis Chapman, one of my favorite preachers, years ago said, nobody stood and applauded them, so they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called to them. He said, come follow me. And they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus led with no thought for what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name and they answered, We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. That mentality is absent in so many churches. Because what we see in so many churches is captured by this. I don't know who wrote it, but I find it to be very convicting. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or to disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. If that captures the church of the 21st century, how far have we come from those who abandoned it all for the sake of the call? 
be intentional with your life this year. I'm all for best wishes, happy new year. I need a plan. And I think scripture gives us enough to take us to a whole new place as we go forward. And I close with this. Bow your heads and listen carefully, if you will. These are the words of a young pastor in Zimbabwe who ultimately was martyred for his faith. And he stood in a public square and he said these words. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. So how is it with you? Happy New Year? Well, I hope so. But more than that, I hope that it is a productive New Year. And you stand here today with 360 some odd days ahead of you. And the future will be much of what you want it to be. I don't buy too much into that. Because the fact of the matter is you don't get to decide what the future is. But if you decide to go into it with your hand in his, he will walk you to a future that will blow your mind. Let's pray. Father, take this time. Use your word to challenge us to the deepest levels. Help us to be good stewards of the time that lies in front of us. Live through us. Make us what you want us to be is our prayer in Jesus' name.